0: coming to the end of our series in Philippians this morning, and doubling back to chapter two. I told you I wouldn't skip it, so here we are, Philippians chapter two, and we're beginning at verse five. All right, so you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? You can see why I saved this one for the for the last. It is the best. And so, uh, as we pick up this morning, um, Paul begins with those words he says though uh, he was God he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to instead he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being he was God he speaks of his equality with God and he says he gave up his divine privileges so God in eternity has all the divine privileges. He has everything that comes with being God. That's what Jesus has. He's God. He's equal with God the Father. And through the centuries, the church has struggled with understanding. And I I love the one quote. I think it's from Karl Barth that says, if you deny the Trinity, you're in danger of losing your soul. But if you try to understand it, you're in danger of losing your mind. Like it's that difficult a concept. So people go, well, Christians, did they believe in one God? Yes, just one God. So how is God the Father, and God the Son, and God the... That sounds like three gods, but it's not. And so all through scripture, it's never spelled out, and we don't use the word Trinity in the scriptures, but all through it, there's this sense that there's only one God, and it keeps repeating, there's only one God, and yet... Uh, the New Testament in particular makes the bold claim that Jesus is God, that he's equal with God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so all through the centuries, Christians have believed that truth, that Jesus was God, that he was not secondary to God. It's not just that he's God's son, but, but God the Father is the one who's boss. And there's some confusion because while he was on earth, it says that he submitted to the Father's will. But that's a separate thing. And, and as we unpack the entirety of all that Scripture has to say about Jesus, he is not secondary to the Father in any way. He's co-equal in power and glory, as, as some doctrines put it. And so we have in John's gospel, in, in the prologue to his gospel, at the very beginning of his gospel, we often Uh, Read it at Christmas and it says in the beginning the word already existed the word was with God and the word was God and so he starts to talk about the word and then he says that's Jesus that's who he is he was God in the beginning he existed before anything he was with God and the word was God he was part of creation nothing was made without him and then there's a hymn in Colossians one of the early songs of the church. That we have in the book of Colossians in Paul's letter there that says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. So Jesus is right up there at the top. And so Christians, for all centuries, in in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it puts it, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance. So they're exactly the same in what they're made up of, same substance, equal in power and glory. That's our Jesus. And so we often say it in our church, In the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That's Jesus. That's who he is. And so... We start with that as a theological statement, and, and we might say, well, yeah, that's what we believe, but what difference does it make, right? What, what does that mean? And so as this passage unpacks, uh, Paul says, you, you gotta understand who we're talking about. It's Jesus, who is very God of very God. He's, he's, he's there at the beginning. That's the God that we're talking about. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to hang on to. So he reduces himself to come to earth, but he starts off in heaven equal with God, and so he reduces himself and limits himself as a human person for a while, but that's who he is. So he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, So the the move from up there to down here was a massive change, as as much as anybody could ever change. Their status and their position. He starts at the very top of all that there is and all there ever was, and he reduces himself to be a human being. And it says he gave up his divine privileges and uh, he took the humble position of a slave or a servant. And he was born as a human being. He didn't cling to his equality with God. He, was, he, he came to earth. He was born in a barn. And, and they called him a Nazarene. And, and Nazarenes were like the lowest of the low. It was a big insult. And, and in fact, one of the denominations I served is the Church of the Nazarene. And they grabbed onto that and they went, we're humble people. And they were so proud. Their, their first structures were like big barn-like structures. And they were proud that they didn't have any fancy lighting or any fancy windows or, or any ornate pews. It was just a simple clapboard building. And they said, that's where we're going to meet because we're like the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene, the one who humbles himself and becomes a servant. And, he, and, and then in the end, we have him washing the disciples' feet. And of course, Peter says, "You can't, you can't wash my feet. You're, you're so far beyond this. You're God. You're, you're, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. Maybe I should wash your feet." And and Jesus says, "No. This is the way it's done. If you don't let me, you got no part with me. You got to understand this is who I am." And so he cares for others' needs and struggles, and he brings hope. And he brings healing and he reduces himself to be a servant on earth and he selflessly puts others first and, and, and the structure of this passage it's it's thought to be a poem or a hymn many scholars believe it's a hymn and if it's a hymn the way that the the, the verses line out even death on a cross, that extra line, it's like he gave up his life to death is part of the hymn. And then Paul says, kind of putting in parentheses in a a set of brackets after, like even death on a cross, like he adds that, he's he's lining out the song and he wants to add this extra line to say, not only did he reduce himself to death, but he reduced himself to that death, a criminal's death, the worst and the lowest death that the Roman Empire could dish out. That's the kind of death that he died. That's how humble he was. And then Paul goes on to say, but Jesus humbled himself and, uh, and his servant nature in the end of the story, the cross doesn't get the final word. And so even though he humbled himself, even though he put himself down there, that he is God and so it it he tells us therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father he says look he came down here and he did this and he humbled himself but make no mistake He's back up on top now, and every knee is one day going to bow, and every tongue is going to acknowledge and know and have to admit that he is God and that he's above all. And so that's the passage that we're looking at this morning, and that's the passage that so many scholars and so many preachers and so many Christians have looked at and said in a nugget form, that's the whole thing. Jesus, who is very God, a very God, coming to earth and and humbling self and serving others and and showing this example and then dying on a cross for us. But that's not the end of the story because the stone was rolled away and he came out Breathing and living and showing his nail prints and appearing to all kinds of people, hundreds of people at a time. And then he rose into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's waiting for us. And Paul lines out that beautiful theology and and, and there's been so much scholarly attention to this one passage, but we never want to forget that we find it in the middle of this letter. This letter to ordinary Christians sitting in the church in Philippi that struggled with regular stuff, that had tensions in their relationships and needed to be reminded about their unity in Jesus, and Christians who needed to grow, even though they were doing great, needed to be reminded there's still more distance to do. There's, there's still more that we can accomplish. There's more that God wants to do in us to change us and transform us. And, and you don't want to quit till you're done. I want your love, he, Paul says to grow and to develop in, in, and abound in more and more in depth of insight. Like I want you to get smarter and smarter about the way you love. And so Paul, Paul gives this in the middle of the letter but before, in that, past, in that verse, right at the beginning of outlining this hymn, he says, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. That's why Paul's telling us this. He's telling us that Jesus started at the top, that he's very God, a very God, but that he humbled himself, and then he was exalted. But he says, this is the attitude you got to have that's the same as Christ Jesus. And so this story of Jesus who is God is not something just that we should lock in and say, this is what I believe about Jesus, but it's a pattern for us to follow. It's a model of what we should do. It's not just what we we believe in. It's not just what we admire, but it's our example. It's our pattern to live by. And Paul is the first to bend the knee to Jesus. Jesus. And so, if you consider that example and the rest of the letter that we've been working through, you see that Paul is fleshing out what it, that looks like in ordinary Christians' lives. What it means to follow this great Christ, Him, this great truth that Jesus was God and that He humbled Himself all the way. And so, you remember, if you've been with us for the whole series, that, that in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul talks about his privileges as, as, a, as a believer in God. And he says, you know, when I was, when I was raised in, in, in the Judaic tradition, when I was raised and, and, and I became a Pharisee he says everything, he, he says that, that he lists all his privileges and then he says they are nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Like, I've got the pedigree. I was born into this, and I learned all these things, and I passionately served what I believed with all my heart. But he says, all of that's nothing. Like, it's worse than nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ. He says, that's worth nothing, but Jesus is worth everything. And so Paul knows who Jesus is. And and when he understands that, he says, that has impacted me. That means that if he is that great, then he's worthy of all my worship, and he's worthy of all my allegiance, and he's worthy of all my obedience. So that if I know that Jesus has sent me a message as to what I should do, or how I should live, or how I should change I should listen to Jesus and I should follow Jesus and I should allow Jesus to do whatever he wants to do inside of me he humbles himself downward mobility he's a slave uh, a servant and Paul Paul says I'm willing to do that and so Paul's imprisonment he says, leads to other people's confidence in the gospel, and he, he rejoices in that. He rejoices in the fact that he's in prison because he knows I'm living out what Jesus showed me in humbling myself, and that's okay with me. I am fine being in prison for preaching the gospel because I know the gospel is true, and, and the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ who reduces himself and is even reduced to death on a cross. That Jesus I will humble myself as far as I need to. I will suffer as much as you can dish out. If I am in line with that gospel, if I'm following that Jesus, and so he humbles himself, and uh, and he models it for others, and he's he says we need to be like-minded and united in purpose, same mind as Jesus, to be united with him, and consider others better than ourselves, and. And that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he says, that's, that's the downward trend I want to follow Jesus on. And then he gives examples and he says, look, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that's what they did. They got unselfish. Like, like he speaks of Timothy and he says, I have no one else who considers others' interests above their own. Like that's what Timothy is about. Timothy is about being unselfish. What a Jesus-y thing to do. That draws out of that hymn, And, and so Paul is referencing back that truth about who Jesus is, and he says, Timothy is modeling what Jesus did. Smaller way, we can never match Jesus, but it's the same kind of stuff that makes Timothy willing to serve, and Timothy willing to consider about other people's needs and other people's interests, more than he's just going around looking out for number one. And that's why Paul says, welcome Epaphroditus back like a hero. Not because he accomplished big things, not because he's the reigning guy who rides in on the white horse, not because he was even able to help me like he was supposed to, but because he risked everything. He sacrificed his own comfort and his own well-being and even his own health to serve the kingdom of Jesus. And he says, that's like Jesus. And that's why it's worthy of honor. So he holds those two men as, out as examples. And he even holds and Sintike out as examples. He says they were partners in the gospel with, with all the others. They served like everybody else. That's why it's so important to them that they start to get along so they can hold that out as an example too. And so again and again, through the entire letter, Paul is just holding up examples of what it means to work this out in everyday life. And so in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. And then he goes on to debate uh, whether he'd rather live or die. And, 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 and as he unpacks it, he says, I, I want to know, he says that, you know, I, I'm not sure whether I should, if I live, if I die, you know, I die for Jesus and I get to go be with him. But if I stay, it's, you know, it's better for you and I'll, I'll get to go on serving. And, and he's, he's waffling back and forth. He says, I don't lose either way. I win either way. Either I get to go be with Jesus or I get to stay here and serve Jesus. And here's the wild thing. If we were looking at those two possibilities, serving Jesus in this world or dying for him, we would say, you know, the bigger sacrifice would be to die. But Paul says, you know, if I it's better for me to die. Like I'm suffering and I'm going through stuff and I'm facing struggles. Like if I got to go be with Jesus right now, that's my number one pick for me. For Paul, it's more of a sacrifice to stick around and serve Jesus than it is to go be with Jesus. He loves Jesus. He knows he'd be done with the struggle and he'd be done with the hard work and he could just go be with Jesus right now. But he decides that he would rather stay not for his sake but for the sake of the church. And we have letters that were written after Philippians. I'm glad he didn't die because I love those letters. And I'm glad I got those lessons. And I'm glad he continued on I know that feeling. And, and, and I've sat with saints of the church who love Jesus with all their li- hearts and they were lying uh, in, in bed and you know they're close to the end and they say, I don't know why I'm still here. Like I just want to go be with Jesus now. And I got to say to them, you know, when it's, when it's the right time and when God's ready for you, he'll take you. If not then your job is to stay here and be faithful and to talk about his faithfulness to the nurses and the doctors and your family and your friends and anybody who passes into this room. If you get an opportunity you know, to have a legitimate conversation with someone and tell them about Jesus, maybe that's why you're still here. Maybe the way that you suffer will be a light and a witness to them of God's faithfulness in your life. And sometimes they stick around for a while and sometimes it's short and and I hold their hand and they pass from this kingdom into the next and they go to be with Jesus. And Paul says, that's what I would have rathered for me. If I was just thinking about myself, that's what I'd do. But I I think I'm going to stick around and I want to stick around because I know that's what Jesus is calling me to do. So he sees it as a bigger sacrifice to live than to die. And then he goes on, after he's debated there, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. You remember this one from Philippians 3, verse 10? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Like, I want the resurrection life, and I know that I'm going to have to suffer and die to myself in order to get there. I'm going to have to give up on me and everything that's selfish about me so that I can be raised to real resurrection life. And I don't know how that, exactly how that works, but that's what I want. That's what I'm trying to go for. That's my pattern of life, dying and resurrecting. I want the part where I'm humbled like he was humbled, and I suffer like he suffered, and I take up my cross that he called me to take up so that I can be raised to new life. Remember in, in chapter 1, in verse 29, he says, For you have been given not only the privilege, he says to them, of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Man, I, I hope when I suffer, if I'm suffering for the sake of the kingdom, I hope I can take that attitude and say, man, it's a privilege if I know the reason I'm taking it on the chin is because I did the right thing that God called me to do. And if somebody wants to attack me for it, like bring it on because I will be identifying with Jesus. And then Paul goes on to say, God will be glorified and we will be lifted up. That we're not perfect like Jesus is, but but that because we humble ourselves, if we serve him and follow him and do these things, he says you need to understand that the end of the story for, for, for him wasn't the, the the death on the cross, but, but the exaltation, the the rising to new life and rising into heaven. And because he did that, we are bound for that. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, we... But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Using the same power which he will use to bring everything else under his control. He says, we're citizens of heaven. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We are not Canadians first. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and someday we're gonna go home. And he says, when we go home, we get this new body. How many times? Pastor Lloyd, you know. How many times have you sat with somebody and they said, man, I got these aches and pains and, and I just got this diagnosis and, and I can't walk very well anymore and they're taking away my driver's license and, and their body's breaking down and, and they go, man, I got I, this one is, is wearing out and I'm almost done with it. And some of them, it's completely worn out and I've watched them go from this kingdom to the next. and One day, I will meet them again in heaven, and they'll have a new body, and they won't have one ache or one pain, and they'll be walking around free and going, do you believe this? My knees work. That is the truth of the gospel. That is the hope of heaven. That is the way that we are raised to new life, not so that we are raised to the level he is. We never become God. We will go be with God the God that reduced himself and became a human being and walked around on this earth and died for our sins and rose again in his triumphant in heaven and so Paul says look if you need a reason to take my advice in this letter and to relate to one another as I suggest and to rejoice in the Lord always, even if you end up thrown in prison, this is the reason. See, for Paul, since that day on Damascus, this truth about who Jesus is, this Jesus who was crucified and risen, that's the reason for everything. Like, there's no better reason to do anything than that. And so Paul knew the Old Testament scriptures and he didn't stop believing in them, but he puts this at the center. This is the central puzzle piece that makes everything else fit and makes sense in the entire world. Jesus crucified and risen and exalted. Jesus, who is God, very God, very God. So Paul says, it all flows from this. So he says, believe me when I tell you that you should take an interest in other people's situations and you should always be considerate and you should think about other, what other people are going through more than just yourself. The reason to do that is because that's the Jesus way. Timothy did it. And Epaphroditus did it, and Paul did it, and that's the reason that it's not not arrogant when throughout this letter, two or three times, he said, follow my example and follow the examples of others. He says, if somebody else is a couple steps ahead of you on this journey, look closely at them and see how you can make those steps too. Learn from each other. If somebody has learned a lesson you haven't, be willing to listen and pay attention and to follow the the beat of their lives if it follows the pattern of Jesus, the downward trend that leads to the exaltation. Become a servant of all. Be unselfish in everything you do. And you will know what it is to line up with Jesus. And you won't have to worry about lifting yourself up at the end of it or how that will will play out.